the average adult, healthy adult in the absence of a sleep disorder needs seven to nine hours. It's individualized. Some people need more, some people need less. But if you're getting that, you're going to be more able to, your coping strategy is going to be better. You're going to be more emotionally stable. That aspect of positive consolidation of emotions is an aspect of certain parts of our sleep. We're going to be able to better able to deliver in terms of physically delivering throughout the day. If you've got to be, you know, like in your in your roles and your audience's roles being on your feet and being active throughout the day if you've had a, a good night's sleep consistently you're going to be more to do that you're also going to be more motivated to do some form of physical activity which is going to help with that and I'm always very conscious of talking to the audience you've got is like I um, make some suggestions around you know fitting in physical activity or getting access to daylight and getting your seven to nine hours hello and welcome to this week's episode of the burnt chef journal a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. So this week's episode is about a subject I'm quite passionate about because, I mean, look, let's face it, a lot of people in hospitality myself included, really struggle with this particular subject matter. And this week's subject matter is sleep. And I'm very, very lucky to be joined by Sarah Gilcrest, who is a fantastic professional who has a doctorate in sleep and athletic performance and an extensive background in the UK high performance sports industry, working with Olympic athletes. So Dr. Sarah Gilcrest has joined us to help navigate individuals in the quest for enhancing performance through better sleep, especially within hospitality, because one of our biggest used modules on our e-learning platform is all to do with sleep, which shows us that a lot of us out there are struggling at the moment, whether it's been a busy day, a long shift, or whether it is just, you know, perhaps we don't know enough about sleep. So this is a really cool episode. If you want to hear more episodes like this, then do drop us a subscribe or a like, whatever it might be, just so that you get notified when we release new episodes. The more episodes we have, the better our guests are. So do feel free to share the love and I'll get started on this week's episode. The Burnt Chef Project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston a leading provider of innovative, high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges and mash. To find out more, head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. Sarah, good morning. Morning, how are you? Good, thank you. Good. Sunny Monday morning here in the UK, so uh, it's good. Whereabouts in the UK are you? I'm in Caversham, in just outside Reading. So yeah, it's lovely and sunny here. We've got some daylight, which as we'll learn about is good to help our sleep. So always a good start to the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I found that yesterday, so the clocks changed here in the UK for anyone who's not in the UK. They changed yesterday and I had an appointment at 10 o'clock that I had to be at. And I found myself, I was up ready to go at 8 o'clock. It completely and utterly threw me, completely yeah. threw me yesterday. It screwed with my body clock massively. And then I found like the yesterday's day just seemed to go on forever as well. It's uh, 
Yeah. yeah, when the clocks fall back and the awesome's a tricky one, certainly. I mean, it does, as we'll learn, sleep is entirely individualised and the clock changes to do with our circadian rhythm, our internal biological clock. And some people are more affected than others. Most of us, it will take a couple of days, like you say, the long day, the first day, feel hungry at odd times, that kind of thing. And then we're into the swing of it. But some people, it can take months. And then six months later, you change it again. So I feel quite sorry for those people who are at the extreme end of how they respond to the time change. Yeah, massively. I was in bed last night at eight o'clock watching something on, obviously it's Halloween now. So I was watching something on paranormal activity. I found myself asleep at eight o'clock. I was out for the count, completely gone. So yeah, was grateful for that extra hour. But Sarah, so you mentioned sleep. Uh, we haven't actually spoken before, and, and I like the fact that we haven't spoken before because it allows me to learn and, and to explore your profession and your experience and also the particular subject matter. So are you able just to give the audience a bit a quick introduction as to who you are and what it is that you specialize in, please? Sure. So my background's in physiology. I was worked in the UK elite sports system for many years. Latterly, I was with the UK Sports Institute. So I was one of their lead physiologists working with British rowing right through from the Beijing Olympics through to the Rio Olympics. And during that time, I specialised in looking into sleep and athletic performance. So there wasn't many studies around athletic sleep. There was a few, but it hadn't really been investigated. It's very different now. It kind of exploded in the last five, six, seven years. And so my doctorate was on sleep and athletic performance. And then our family came along and I decided that working in elite sport wasn't quite what I wanted to be doing, similar probably to working in the hospitality industry with chefs and work-life balance, all that kind of thing, going away on training camps. So I decided to take my sleep knowledge and my knowledge of physiology and human biology and take that into a different environment in relation to public health. So now I spend a lot of time working on advising and educating around sleep health to corporate audiences, or audiences like yourselves, anybody that's interested in improving their sleep health, but also with an element of, of needing to perform in their daily lives. So whether that's getting through the day or delivering on a project or working in a high performance environment, not necessarily sleep. So that's kind of how I came around to working in the environment that I do today. That's incredible. I mean, it's a subject matter that we know historically has been a big, big subject matter for our audience. If anyone, you know, has struggled with their sleep before, if you've worked in hospitality, you'll know what it's like to finish a shift and to try and get to sleep after all of that adrenaline has been running through your system for a good 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours. And then you're expected just to stop, go at home, quieten your brain down and try and get to sleep when you're still in that heightened sense of arousal. So we get it. So we've got a module on sleep on our website, which would love you to have a look through and to, you know, if you wanted to add anything to that or to correct, feel free. But it's one of our most accessed modules last year. I think it got accessed or something ridiculous, like four and a half thousand times. So it's one of our most it's the one that people want to know the most about. So, and the fact that it's related also to high performance sports, I, we often say, or I often say that the hospitality profession is and should be treated like a high performance athlete sport. You know, we should be giving our brains and our bodies the same nutrients, the same time to rest and recover. And in fact, actually, you know, rather than just looking at industries like the banking sector or like retail and trying to learn from those, we should be going above and beyond based on the fact that our bodies and our brains are being put through all of these additional stressors. So 
hit me with it then. Athletic sleep. What are the benefits of having a good night's sleep, first and foremost? Oh, many benefits, many benefits. And I think the parallels between your hospitality industry and elite sport are, you know, it's true. It is it's a, you know, a marathon, not a sprint for you guys. And most days in your daily work, and you're doing it day after day after day. But yeah, the benefits of good sleep, if you think the average adult, healthy adult in the absence of a sleep disorder needs seven to nine hours. It's individualized. Some people need more, some people need less. But if you're getting that, you're going to be more able to, your coping strategy is going to be better. You're going to be more emotionally stable that aspect of positive consolidation of emotions is an aspect of certain parts of our sleep we're going to be able to better able to deliver in terms of physically delivering throughout the day if you've got to be you know like in your in your roles or your audience's roles being on your feet and being active throughout the day if you've had a, a good night's sleep consistently you're going to be more to do that you're also going to be more motivated to do some form of physical activity which is going to help with that and I'm always very conscious of talking to the audience you've got. It's like I make some suggestions around, you know, fitting in physical activity or getting access to daylight and getting your seven to nine hours. It's not as easy as that. So some of the things that I'll talk about, you know, as we move forward through the discussion is you've got to be pragmatic. And yes, the benefits are you're going to, you know, feel mentally, you know, more able. You're going to feel physically better. You've got, your immune system isn't going to be as compromised, all of these things. But you also need to be pragmatic. And the industry that you guys working is high performance it's long hours all that kind of thing so it's managing your sleep around those times when you're working and there's a bit of a behavior change a bit of a culture shift which we're not going to fix on a Monday morning at half past nine but I think the tide is changing in some of the reading I've done in preparation for our discussion the tide just does seem to be changing in how employers might approach the work shift balance that your audience might experience and hopefully that will then allow for some time where sleep can be a priority and there is more of a balance versus the traditional nature of the job similar to what's happened in medicine you know the old adage of house officers you just you know you do your shifts and you're in the hospital you're the, the low level of the chain in terms of the medical hierarchy so therefore you will work and work and work and that's not a safe environment for patients or staff probably similar to your audience as well you need to be safe in the kitchen and if you're sleep deprived then you know mistakes do happen so I think you know there's lots of benefits to sleep but also the premise that the culture needs to change around your industry as well in order to help get some of the benefits of sleep is what I'm trying to say. I hear you. And there's a lot of people probably out there at the moment that are either thinking to themselves or screaming out loud going, wow, it's fucking impossible. It's There's no way that we're going to be able to change this culture because it, we need to stay open to 11, 12 o'clock in order to make money. If we're not making money, we can't be employed. So you know, understanding that this industry isn't a nine to five and you know we can't clock off at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon yeah. and go home and get the decent rest. How much do you know about the hospitality industry to be able to start to guide us into some principles and some sort of core foundational understanding that will allow us to actually improve our relationship with stress or allow us as an industry to start prioritizing stress as a key component of performance? I'd be interested to hear more about, but my understanding is that there's a kind of your shift work pattern in terms of you have your breakfast, your lunch and your dinner shifts and maybe elements of that shift will change throughout the week depending on what your shift is. But then if someone's sick, you know, people might work days off to help, you know, ease the burden in the kitchen and that kind of thing. So it's finding the pockets of time based on the shift pattern that you've been given 
where you can prioritize your sleep. So I don't know if the parallels are similar to shift workers who obviously they have a nocturnal working pattern, but the advice is always with shift workers is when you're not on shift is get back into a regular sleep pattern as quickly as you can. Our bodies like homeostasis, they like a state of balance in terms of physiology. And sleep is a massive part of maintaining that balance. If we're imbalanced from a physiological point of view, then our bodies go into overdrive. Stress is a perfect example and one that fits your industry quite well in the sense that our bodies like stress. If you think of an elite athlete, you know, it's an adaptation response. We have a stress and we have a recovery and that's the the adaptation and that's how we improve physically or physiologically for, you know, whatever event we're training for. But when our bodies are in a state of stress chronically, where there's no recovery from that and sleep offers that period of recovery from stress, we go into a chronic state of inflammation. So our immune system is compromised, high levels of adrenaline, high levels of cortisol. And that has a massive effect on our physical and mental well-being. And Certainly mental health and sleep have a reciprocal relationship. You know, Are you stressed because you can't sleep or can you not sleep because you're stressed? And the underlying factors of stress are varied and many, but certainly I think in terms of your high performance environment and that stress response, recovery is key. So finding those windows where you can access some daylight, you can get to bed in a regular time if you know if you've got a period of time away from the kitchen if that happens or you've got two days off in a row is better than I mean I know it's difficult for your audience when I was working in high performance sport we worked weekends and then you'd occasionally get a day off you know and it's really hard in terms of a sleep pattern when you're constantly having to be somewhere where you've got high responsibility to get that sleep pattern so taking a step back and finding those windows is crucial really yeah yeah one of the things you're talking about in terms of our relationship and our body's relationship with stress as well is what many people don't realize is also epigenetic as well so you know if we continue to experience these chronic levels of stress without that regular recovery period one we don't recover as quickly and two we can also pass this effectively on to our offspring as well and so you know it's vitally important and so how much of okay so Let's look at stress as a bodily response then. And it's something that we obviously experience. We don't get a great deal of downtime. We're often in physically demanding environments, both back of house, front of house, whether you're a night porter, whatever it might be. You know, you're often on your feet, you're around for long periods of time. You have differences in heat, whether you're going outside, coming inside, whether you're in the kitchen. So sort of how much of sleep is one of the key components? Well, I guess what I'm trying to get to is what percentage of sleep impact stress so is sleep one of the big defining things that's actually going to start to reduce those stress levels or is it sort of 40 percent of the overall picture so how important is sleep in that mitigation of stress it's fundamental and this is what my doctorate was on really is that the impact factor on determinants of performance so your determinants of performance in the hospitality industry you know front of house back of house it's the same as determinants of performance in elite sport you have a goal that you have to you know attain every day you know especially if you're you know working in a any environment michigan star to you know whatever environment hospitality environment you're working in those determinants of performance sleep is the ultimate impact factor on those you can have good nutrition you can have good physical activity you can have good relationships 
But if you have poor sleep, that will impact on your food choices. You'll make poor food choices if you're sleep deprived. You'll be less motivated to do some physical activity. You'll be less emotionally stable. So that will affect your relationships. So sleep is fundamental to that stress response. I mean, there's a whole cascade of neurotransmitter physiological systems that happen when we're asleep that help in that recovery phase in that recovery part and that there's a response to stress but when we're not allowing ourselves to have that window of sleep that we need whether it's seven to nine hours whether it's six hours some people need 10 like I say it's completely individualized we have a 90 minute sleep cycle and in that sleep cycle you have different architecture of sleep you have your deep sleep you have your light sleep and you have your dream sleep and different aspects of your sleep architecture will help in your response to stress. So REM sleep, for example, occurs more frequently later on in the night. And that is thought to help with our memory consolidation. It's thought to help with our emotional stability, our responses to emotional activities that have happened during the day. So if we are shortchanging ourselves in terms of the window, our opportunity to sleep, that sleep window, we're going to get less opportunity for deep sleep. We're going to get less opportunity opportunity for our REM sleep that memory consolidation and that positive consolidation of emotional responses so it's the, the short changing of your sleep that can therefore have an impact on your stress response the stress response is the same physiologically for everybody in terms of the hormones that are elevated but how you respond to stress how you interact with that stress response is will be different and that veers into psychology which I'm not a psychologist make that clear but certainly how you react to stress and how you respond to stress will be different for everybody but in terms of sleep it's a given it's fundamental that it, it will help your sleep it will it will help your response to stress if you've had good, a period of good sleep so I think that's really interesting it's fascinating there's two things that are running through my mind and if we get through both of those fantastic but Firstly, I was talking to a neuroscientist who I just happened to bump into how fortunately my world seems to work a couple of weeks ago. And he said to me that mental illness and stress and various other bits and bobs is all driven by emotion. He said mental and physical health is impacted by emotion, not by health itself. And I said, well, I, I don't get it. What do you mean? He said, think about it. Think about the times where you work out or you eat well. Or on the flip side, you decide you don't want to work out or you don't want to eat well or you use drugs or alcohol. He says, what's driving that behavior? And I said, I, I, I don't know whether I feel happy or sad or optimistic or pessimistic. And he said, exactly. He said, your emotional intelligence, your emotions will dictate the impacts on your physical or mental health. And that was mind-blowing for me. So if someone is, for example, tired mm. or lethargic or they're not getting the right element, element of sleep and they feel genuinely, mm. as we all do, you know what it's like, especially if you've got young children, for example, you know what it's like not mm. to have a great deal of sleep. You wake up in the morning going, oh, God, it's today already. You're less likely to make informed decisions about the health and well-being of your daily activities, right? And is that what you found yeah. with your study? Yes, and then um, obviously I'm not a neuroscience, but I, I like the way he's described that because that comes back to my point that sleep is fundamental to that, those decision-making processes, your behaviour, your emotions, because that aspect of sleep, your dream sleep, your REM sleep, which happens in, during every 90-minute sleep cycle, but more laterally towards the 
later stages of the nocturnal emotional control. So that then has that knock on effect on the decisions that you make. And you mentioned alcohol. Alcohol will it can be it's a sedative. It depresses your central nervous system. So you may feel like you fall asleep quicker, but essentially you're going into deep sleep quicker. So you're missing out some of that lighter sleep and REM sleep aspect of the sleep cycle. And then the more you drink, the less REM sleep you'll get. So therefore, the less emotional stability you'll get because you've missed out on that aspect of your sleep architecture again. And therefore, your decision making, where you feel physically as well, will be affected, obviously. But yeah, that, that emotional stability, that aspect of mental health will certainly be affected if you've cut short your sleep just because of working hours but if you've also therefore added to the concoction through you know drinking too much or drinking too much too close to bedtime whatever it may be my brain's firing off on all cinders at the moment you know you're thinking about this cascading effect which is your emotional health needs to be in a good state in order to manage your physical and mental health but your emotional health is going to be impacted by not getting enough regular exercise or sleep as, as an important conduit in this discussion i'm going to take a bit of a dive off in a slightly different direction as well because yeah, i'm i'm, I'm, I'm fascinated i'm fascinated by this whole subject and so i've you know over the last few years i've read a few different studies on ways of tackling things like depression and new sort of research that's being done and interestingly enough one of the bits of research i found was all about the relationship between depression and rem sleep and that how if you are experiencing a depression the stage of rem is elongated so you know you might get eight or nine hours sleep but wake up feeling really exhausted because you're locked into a longer term rem sleep cycle and so they've looked at how they can wake people up and break them out of that REM phase so that they can get into a more natural rhythm. Is that something that you come across yourself? Is it accurate? Yeah, I said I've read about it. I mean, like, I'm always very clear. My background's physiology and not psychology or, you know, not mm. a psychiatrist or anything like that. But certainly one of the symptoms of depression is excessive sleep. So that would make sense in the sense that if you're elongating part of your sleep architecture, that certainly fits with some of the symptoms of depression and the fact that, you know, you might people who are depressed or anxious can describe the fact that they're getting enough sleep, but they're actually, you know, it's too much sleep. They don't want to get out of bed. And that's veering into a, another area of science that I'm not, you know, not trained in. But certainly mm-hmm. the, the whole mental health, you know, relationship with sleep is entirely reciprocal because of the effect of the sleep architecture. And the changes in that, that certain mental health disorders, um, you know, can manifest. So, yeah, it, certainly this clinical referral would need if somebody is experiencing those symptoms for sure. So bringing it a little bit back on track, sorry, I had to ask those questions because I, I haven't ever spoken to someone who, who specialises in sleep before. So I'm quite, quite interested. What were some of your key learnings from the work that you're doing with high performance athletes and the relationship that they have with sleep? during your time in that field uh, it's really interesting because uh, working with rowing obviously they have early starts and um they on the whole weren't getting enough sleep mainly due to logistics and commuting so we had like some of the we had a centralized training venue so some of them live quite close so that was fine 
and some of them you know still chose to live in London so you've got an hour commute and you have to be on the water for 7 30 so and that's not just get out your car and get on the water that's be at the training venue at a decent enough time to have warmed up you know got everything done your debriefing with your crew and your coaches and all the rest of it so there was some you know and in the winter months as well that's you know some you know a commute that you could probably avoid if you wanted to but yeah certainly things that affected you know their athletic performance were training competition and travel they were the three biggies because people always used to think oh athletic sleep well that's to do with jet lag and travel and that's an aspect of it for sure also like I say our bodies like to be in balance so you know changing you know shifting your circadian rhythms when you travel across time zones is certainly not keeping your body in balance and then, yeah, the training regimes, the logistics of training, the type of training, the timing of training, the duration, the frequency, all that kind of stuff. And it's that adaptive response. You know, the athletes' are, bodies are in a state of stress because it needs to be to make the physiological adaptation in the training program. And then competition as well, you know, whether it's anxiety around competition or timing of competition or just, you know, a bad night's sleep before a competition is probably quite common in a lot of athletes and that sleep reactivity how you react to poor sleep and that stress response is very individualized some people have quite a strong sleep reactivity index so they will react to poor sleep and stress they will react to stress through poor sleep whereas some people will react to stress but it doesn't affect their sleep too much so yeah there was a, lots of key findings but the main thing that came about was because of 2012 at the time, that was the, the main thing. They weren't getting enough recovery. They were being pulled left, right and centre in the pre-Olympic year to do media around home games. And any time that they would have that window of recovery that I talked about for your audience wasn't happening quite so much. So we had to make a real effort in terms of educating them around their sleep and around their downtime. You know, yes, be pragmatic, have your lives and all the rest of it. You're elite athletes. You know, you, you know what you should be doing in terms of what you need to do to deliver a, a consistently in the training program. But because it was a home games, it was different. The, the recovery was being impacted because of the non sort of rowing related activities that were going on in the commute as well. So, so this is the interesting dichotomy we find ourselves in as an industry, which is, you know, Let's say, for example, and I do believe that we are elite athletes, you know, we have to put off our brains, as we've already discussed, through, through some quite strenuous conditions. So when it comes to things like sleep, for example, should we sacrifice our sort of home life so that we can maximize our performance and proficiency at work life? Like, you know, you're saying the examples of athletes, elite athletes, they know that perhaps they can't go out down the pub with their mates for until two o'clock in the morning or you know finish late at the cinema because they need to prioritize their sleep it's one or the other they also know it's for set periods and, and they will get that recovery stage at some stage so yeah. how do we go about navigating that in an industry where we are perhaps not fortunate enough from an employment point of view to be given those sort of times yeah and when I was preparing for our chat this morning it was it's really difficult I think it, I just kept coming back to the culture of the industry and I guess it's a way of navigating your way through that change it probably is a generational change you're not going to change the working practices say of, of people in hospitality who are perhaps coming to the end of their career and have been doing it for 40 years and you know that's what they've always done same 
if you look at the parallels with medicine, you know, consultants who, well, that's what I did when I was a house officer and, you know, that's how it's done. I think it is a generational change and I think it's an approach to working practices where there are, it's easy to fall into trying to be idealistic and realise that that isn't, isn't the case. But where, you know, recovery is recognised as part of the high performance domain and that if you want people to be delivering if you want people to be working in an optimal performance environment where they are you know working hard delivering in the kitchen to the best that they can do they do need that recovery in order to be able to do that mentally and physically you know and I know in Japan and China there's the whole thing of you know napping and having spaces in the work environments, not necessarily hospitality industry, more in office environments where napping is accepted and people go off for a, an afternoon kit. It's just making people have the opportunity to sleep is what's key. So the opportunity to sleep at the right time. So whether that is a nap during their working day, if that's what they need, or the opportunity to leave the kitchen and go out for a bit or allowing them to have that opportunity to get to sleep at a decent time regularly over a you know I don't know so it's a two-week shift pattern at some point in that period they have that opportunity to get to bed at a, a decent time so on the whole napping thing then you know we <laughs> obviously I'm gonna have a nap to try and catch up on sleep and firstly is it a myth that you can catch up on sleep no you can bank sleep so the thing with napping is, is you know, not for everyone. If people don't want to nap, don't force it. <laughs> people thinking, I need to nap. I can't nap. And now I'm stressed because yeah. I can't nap. It's totally individualized. If you've got the circumstances, the motivation and the opportunity to nap, go for it. The afternoon idea is that the normal sleep related to our core temperature, circadian rhythm. So our core temperature dips in the evening and in the afternoon. So that whole nodding donkey syndrome, if you're sat in front of a laptop or sat listening, you might feel sleepy, probably not so much when you're working in a kitchen. But that afternoon nadir is, is what the natural time to nap. That's not practical for everybody. If you are going to nap, the time length for the nap, because of your 80-minute sleep cycle, you want to nap in a time where you're in light sleep. So it's that first 20, 30 minutes of your sleep cycle when you're in sleep stages one and two. If you nap for longer than that, the sleep inertia to overcome is quite great. So you feel really because you're in a stage of deep sleep and you really your body doesn't want to wake up from that too easily. So either nap for 90 minutes. So you've done your full sleep cycle and you're waking up at that natural between sleep cycles where it's light sleep. Or nap for 20, 30 minutes or even just talked about downtime with the rowers, having some downtime. So physically putting your feet at the same level as your head for a period of time during the day allows your body just to everything your autonomic nervous system takes over the nervous system that's in charge of your breathing your heart rate all the voluntary stuff that your body does and it allows that dampening of that stress response to happen just for a little window of time during the day and um, which might work for some people might not work for others but like i say it's your stress response is individualized in terms of how you cope with it if you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. 
We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. So interesting. So in essence, if you were to take sort of a 20, 30-minute nap or a 90-minute nap, you could feel better. Yeah, so napping can be prophylactic, so it can be in anticipation of a period of poor sleep. It can be just because you enjoy doing it and you feel like a nap, so have a nap. It can be restorative. So for your audience, it's probably both. You're probably restoring from the sleep you've lost, but also you're preparing for the sleep you're not going to get. So, you know, it can be, like I say, if you've got the circumstances, the motivation, the opportunity to have a nap, do it. Your body will benefit. But obviously, make sure that you're doing it. This the adage of shift workers. Make sure you're doing it in a safe environment. So with shift workers, we're always like, not at your workstation. If you're operating machinery, that's not the place to have the nap. And this is what I'm saying about the culture change. It's like employers having a, you know, a kind of an approach to employee recovery time, whether that's sleep or whether it's downtime or whatever, and and having an environment where they can go and do that. Which, you know, has financial implications and all the rest of it. But I think if you're talking about a culture change and a behavior change and giving people the opportunity to be able to deliver in a high performance environment, then that's what it takes. So my brain's just done a little bit of a fire. It's not used to, can I just say, it's not used to working so furiously at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. So um, (laughs) this is rather, (laughs) it's rather jarring for me. So if anyone's listening to this, then consider putting in place a sleep policy that is a set of rules or guidelines that as a business you commit to, to say we value sleep we understand its its impact on performance and we are firstly going to comply with regulations or laws in terms of reasonable time frames between working shifts which often tend to get breached in the uk and also you know in other parts of the world i think hospitality tends to not deliberately ignore laws but laws seem to it's like you know having stress reduction workplace stress mitigation processes in place it's a legal requirement in most countries and yet no organizations have them in place it's just like oh it's another paperwork type thing but it can quite literally improve your business and the same with sleep so consider putting in place a sleep policy and also if you've got hotels or you've got rooms on site that are vacated and are not likely to be used consider giving half an hour slots for team members to go and have a ride out like what a brilliant idea you know comfortable bed 30 minutes and if they come back recovered and you know Mm -hmm. more able to perform better and happier and healthier they're likely to stay with you for longer Mm -hmm. as well right oh yeah employees are your greatest asset so you want to increase your productivity look after your employees yes yeah i mean that's exactly that's our whole rhetoric which is you know start looking after the people that make your business tick because if you don't look after Mm. them your business doesn't tick anymore it's a broken clock the uk the economy loses 40 billion a year due to sleep deprived issues so you know and that's set to rise to 47 billion by 2030 i think yeah so people are getting less sleep or is it just it's all sorts so people are getting too little sleep so their immune system's compromised so they're more likely to be off with your coughs your colds 
upper respiratory tract illnesses. So they're going to have more days off than someone who's getting enough sleep. So productivity is down. You've got absenteeism, presenteeism. You know, so if somebody's suffering mental health issues, they're not productive in the workplace. You've then also got the aspect of accidents in the workplace related to shift workers, but it could in like hospitality industry might be some accidents in the kitchen due to sleep deprived issues so equipment is taken out can't be used so you're losing money because equipment's out you're losing the employees that were perhaps injured it's huge it's the rand report um i think it was 2016 i can send it you yeah it's we look millions and it's the same all over the world due to issues related to people being sleep deprived I'd love, yeah, I'd love any reports that you have. I mean, I found an article on the 19th of October, actually, a week or so ago, from Victoria government in Australia, and a business has just been fined 380,000 Australian dollars for effectively having a toxic workplace culture and Mm -hmm. psychosocial hazards, which then resulted in people becoming mentally and physically unwell. And they've actually Mm -hmm. been fined, you know, all close to half a million in terms of Australian dollars, because they didn't take reasonable steps to start to mitigate this. And so if we're talking about sleep, you know, and sleep is one of the things that people are lacking, then consider how you would go about challenging that. Your point about the hotels, you know, they've got a gym, they've got a pool, all that kind of stuff for recovery and downtime. Yes. So one of the things, when if I'm using a gym or a pool in a hotel and I'm lucky enough I say lucky enough. So you, we talk about people's relationship with sleep and travel for me is the thing that completely and utterly wrecks my body. And I don't even have to travel time zones. I get really, really tired traveling. So when I book places, I tend to book with a gym. At the very least, just something that I can use to try and blow out some of the cobwebs and invest in my physical fitness and mental fitness. But I talk to the staff always when I go to these places. I say, oh, you yeah, know, gym's nice. Do you get a chance to use it? And they always say, no, we're not allowed to use it or we're allowed mm. to use it once a year. And I mm. just think that is so odd that we have these facilities, you know, where there is a spa, like a steam room for me is like having 20 minutes sleep. It sorts yeah. me out for the rest of the day. Yeah. And yet we're <clears throat> not giving our team members access to something that could actually allow them to feel better and to perform better and for you to have a healthier business. It's just yeah. like, yeah. it's yeah. so wrong. It's so wrong. It needs to change. It needs to change massively. Your point on travel fatigue is a thing as well, in the sense that you know you don't necessarily need the time zone change to have an effect on you physically and mentally. So we used to travel to Europe a lot with the rowers, and we would get the well, the office would book the cheapest flights, which would often be an early flight. So even though the time zone change is only an hour but you're having to get up at three, four in the morning to then get a six o'clock flight. So therefore the desynchronization of your, the athlete's circadian rhythm is more than it would be, you know, if they just traveled at 10 o'clock or lunchtime, but because they were the cheaper flights. And so then it takes, that's a knock on performance again on the on their performance in the training camp or competition, because it's taken them two or three days, you know, to get into a regular routine and regain that balance, whereas we wouldn't have had to have dealt with that quite so much if we'd got a later flight. So it's not always time zone differences that cause the fatigue. There is the general fatigue of travel and depending on what time you leave. Plus also travel, like unless you get on at point A, which is your front door and get off at point B, which is the location, 
travel requires a lot of mental capacity mm. to, mm-hmm. you know, if you've ever missed a flight, you know how horrendous that feels. And so you have to be aware that you're at the right gate, you're at the right oh. time, you've got the right luggage, you've got your passport, you're always double checking. And, and so you're always on, like you're, the yeah. level of mental fatigue, you know, is just it's huge with traveling. So yeah. take another two hours out of your sleep cycle with that as well. And you've just got a compounding effect, right? Yeah, certainly the effect of your on your cognitive ability is, is significantly affected by sleep deprivation. So you have to be uh, using your mental faculties to, you know, quite a large degree when you're traveling in terms of logistics and managing all that. It's going to have a knock on effect. So circadian rhythm, for those who aren't familiar, can you just explain very briefly what circadian rhythm is, please? Yeah, sure. So we have many circadian rhythms in our bodies. It's our body's internal biological rhythm. So we have circadian rhythm for hormone release, appetite, temperature control. But the main one in relation to sleep is our circadian rhythm in relation to the light-dark cycle. So we have two ways in which we fall asleep. We have our sleep pressure that builds throughout the day, and that's related to chemicals in the brain and neurotransmitters. But our sleep, our circadian rhythm is linked to the light-dark cycle on a hormone called melatonin. And this is our Dracula hormone. It only comes out at night. So when the sun is dim in the evening, photosensitive receptors in our eyes send a message deep into our brain to a place called the suprachiasmic nucleus, which is your SCN. That's your central governor of all your circadian rhythms. And that tells another area of the brain to release melatonin. It takes a couple of hours for melatonin to peak, usually most people. And that is what helps tell our body it's light all day and to fall asleep. It doesn't say go to sleep. It tells our body that it's the time of day to start falling asleep. And then you get a cascade of responses to help us get to sleep. The opposite happens in the morning. The sun comes up. Same receptors in our eyes say, right, it's light. Melatonin levels are suppressed. So this is the science around why screens are bad in the evening, you know, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever, because it's suppressing that melatonin. And we need the melatonin levels to be rising in order for our bodies to recognise that it's the time of day for us to be falling asleep. Interesting. Okay. And in terms of circadian rhythm, I did read that it was less about the time that you go to sleep and more about the time that you wake up every day. Is that to try and keep that in some sort of balance or rhythm? Is that correct? Well, well, no, what they're saying is because it comes back to our bodies need to be in that state of balance of homeostasis and the regular get up time and the regular bedtime and the regular the routine around sleep is linked to that circadian rhythm and because the get up time is normally set for most people it's an anchor point in the day because you usually have to be somewhere whereas the bedtime is less structured for most people whereas get up time is like I need to be up at 6 30 I've got children to feed I've got to get them to school I've got to get trained to work or whatever it may be so that's Mm. I suspect why they're saying it's that get up but no circadian rhythm is a 24-hour rhythm that we have internally to our bodies like I say it influences many aspects many physiological processes and that is what becomes desynchronized when there's a time zone change or a clock change like we've just had over the weekend thank you again apologies for the questions but i'm just really you, know, they, you don't get an opportunity to fire someone questions or something that's you've been curious about but people you know you've obviously got professional right on your doorstep okay so we mentioned at the beginning of the call uh slightly longer daylight hours at the moment whilst the, the clocks have changed 
unfortunately the mornings and evenings do start to draw in from this part forward so with the sun how much does that impact your overall sleep and your access to things like vitamin d from the light what what impact does that have on your overall sleep yeah so that's why the access to daylight is huge particularly if you can get it in, in the first third of the day it comes back to the body's homeostasis that balance mechanism and knowing the difference knowing where we are in time and space knowing where we are in terms of light and dark and the fact that it's daylight we're awake our melatonin levels are suppressed hormones are released in terms of you know our adrenaline that keeping us awake our alertness all that kind of all those physiological processes that are linked to being awake and being active and blood flow and getting moving all that kind of stuff so it's sunlight is really key to our sleep in the way in the sense that our bodies respond to the fact that they know it's light or it's dark if you think how you feel if you've not you know if you've worked in an office that hasn't got any windows you've worked in the kitchen where you've not really been outside you know and then you leave work and it's dark you know or you get to work and it's dark and it is it's very hard in the winter you know very hard so that's even more so why it's important if you can even if it's just a 10 minute break where you go outside of the back door of the restaurant and you know stand and face the sun you know getting access to daylight on a regular basis helps with our body's circadian rhythm in relation to the light dark cycle and knowing whether it's alert wakefulness period or a sleepiness period wonderful thank you okay so i'm thinking to try and wrap i mean i'm sure there's probably a lot more that we can discuss but i'm thinking in terms of trying to wrap this podcast into some tangible tips people can benefit from oh, there's a couple of questions around that specifically with those who perhaps are in the nighttime economy sector where they're finishing at three four o'clock in the morning and perhaps some tips that will help with that but one thing we haven't covered so we've covered stress exercise we've covered light water and nutrition what should people be doing from a water and nutrition point of view to help aid rest and recovery through sleep so our two biggest circadian rhythms are our sleep, light, dark cycle and appetite. So that's why when you cross time zones, people always say eat at the regular meal times for the place that you've landed, because that's another trigger to tell your body where you are in terms of time of day. So certainly eating regular times at set normal times around your working day will help. But also, you know, the long hours, I'm thinking of my athlete brain, not necessarily sleep now, but the long hours that they're doing, they will need to keep energy levels up. So it's eating appropriately. So high energy things, the usual things, you know, your nuts, your fruit, nut mixes, all, all that kind of stuff that's high energy, but low fat rather than the stodgy carbohydrate, which is going to make you feel sleepy, particularly in the afternoon. And recognizing that when you are craving those foods it's the poor sleep that affects our appetite and makes us particularly shift workers they will you don't want to feel like a, a mixed salad at three in the morning that's why you're craving the carbohydrate it, it affects our appetite hormones when we're sleep deprived or when we have a, a desynchronization of our circadian rhythm so it's trying to eat healthy a well-balanced diet around the times that you're working but certainly regular meal times will help in that longevity of the working hours and also hydration so just keeping yourselves hydrated you know not just for, you know in terms of sleep but you know in terms of being healthy you know I think it's for adults now it always changes but you know a certain number of eight glasses a day I think it usually was yeah, uh, yeah. particularly 
you know, caffeine, if you tolerate it, is fine up until lunchtime. And then we usually say to decrease the intake of caffeine because the sleep pressure, the other physiological mechanism that helps us get to sleep is driven by a chemical buildup in our brain that increases linearly throughout the day. And caffeine will blunt the response. It keeps us alert, basically, doesn't it? So that flip-flop switch between your sleep-promoting centre and your, your wakefulness centre that normally just happens when you fall asleep is blunted by caffeine. And the half-life of caffeine varies from person to person, how you metabolise it, how long it stays in your system. Um, it's totally individualised. So, you know, take caffeine as you do, but acknowledge it will affect your sleep. Some people can have a cup of coffee before bed and it's fine. Other people who've had three cups of coffee after lunchtime, they know they're not going to get to sleep. So, Yeah, I used to, perhaps in a healthier state, I used to be able to drink a black cup of coffee before going to bed and still sleep absolutely yeah. soundly. But I recently have really started struggling with my sleep. I think work pressures and various other bits and bobs, I have a really restless sleep at this moment in time and i think a lot of people listening to this will feel or experience similar especially post service so here i am i finished work at sort of two o'clock in the morning it's been a nine ten, perhaps even a longer day which you know if it is then i'm sorry that that's the case but hopefully that will change in the future i get home i'm hungry I'm feeling tired, but there's no way I can get to sleep. My body's telling me I need a dopamine hit and I want to scroll through Instagram, smash down a pizza and potentially drink some alcohol because these are the things that I'm craving. What would you say to me right now if that was the situation and what do I need to do in order to make sure that I've got the best opportunity of having a healthy sleep? I think the pragmatic side of me would say if that's a one-off, then, you know, live your life and do <laughs> that's what you need to do. I think the problem is if you're doing that every night, balance is key certainly you're not going to get to sleep if you've you know just finished work and your brain's still going so sometimes it's sacrificing the quantity of sleep for the quality of sleep and doing something that is relaxing for you that isn't going to you know keep you alert so whether it's watching netflix or something that's downtime that means that then you go into into a sleepy state reading whatever it's totally individualized some people like breathing exercises some people can watch netflix some people can have a hot milky drink it totally depends and then so that you're in a state to then be in a cool calm dimly lit environment to fall asleep so you take the hit on the quantity of sleep but your quality of sleep would be better because you've not tossed and turned for an hour trying to get to sleep while you're still in that alert state from having just finished work you know a warm milky drink is going to be better than having lots of alcohol immediately before sleep all that kind of stuff yeah massively yeah. trying to sleep after yeah if you still consume alcohol trying to sleep after consuming alcohol often feels like you pass out and you wake up in the morning you don't have to drink lots you can be just like two pints or a couple of units and you'll feel like you've gone to sleep but you'll wake up in the morning feeling absolutely shattered so you're not actually sleeping or getting the right level of the right sleep right so Definitely try and swerve that. Is exercise before bed is to try and blow out some of that cortisol? Is that a good idea? Yeah. And again, it's totally individualized how you respond to exercise before bed. It used to be, you know, people say don't exercise straight before bed because, you know, you're not going to get to sleep. But I think if it doesn't affect your sleep, the type, the duration, the frequency of exercise, you know, there's various subtle differences in your sleep based on the type, duration and frequency, but essentially moving 
will help you sleep. You will get to sleep quicker. Your sleep latency, that period in terms of how long it takes you to get to sleep is improved. The amount of deep sleep you get is improved. I mean, obviously, like once you've exercised, make sure you're hydrated, eat something, even if it's a light snack, you need to feed your immune system after you've exercised with some form of carbohydrate. Otherwise, you you know put yourself at risk for picking up coughs and colds or whatever. Um, I don't know anybody that would go for a run after work, kick their shoes off and jump straight into bed. So there is you know, a certain amount of downtime involved. And if it's not affecting your ability to get to sleep, then that's fine. If it does, then try and exercise earlier if you can or shift it so that you go to sleep. Or maybe if there's a window in the morning where you can do it, you know, it's so individualized and dependent on your schedule. It's, you know, I can't sort of say do this and, you know, that will, but certainly physical activity i always err on the side of caution saying exercise because people think i say you have to you know be training for a marathon or something it's not that it can be walking the dog in the park it can be you know just doing some pilates some yoga anything that is some form of physical activity certainly will help you get to sleep quicker and help you achieve deeper sleep for longer so moving is best Perfect. It's our natural state, isn't it? You know, two hundred thousand years ago, we were migrationary creatures. We we had very simple lives, and our bodies were built for those simple lives. Moving was one of them. Security, certain temperatures, eating the right sort of foods. Life was much simpler back then, but our bodies are still simple. However, they are now responding to a very complex world. So, just try and emulate what it'd be like to be a cave person again, right? Yeah. <laughs> life would be so much easier yeah i think that's a really really good sort of point to end the podcast on but before we wrap up i was just was there anything in particular that you wanted our audience to hear any particular research that's going on at the moment that you think it might be prudent for them to know about yeah i think i think with sleep it's the guys at oxford university professor colin espy and his colleagues they came up with these principles of getting good sleep that really which is the the good advice in terms of personalize your sleep window value your sleep prioritize your sleep you know those kind of values the whole true rather than the old-fashioned term was sleep hygiene you know all this any advice you can google sleep hygiene you'll get the advice anywhere on the internet but it's more about giving yourself the opportunity to sleep and valuing it and like I say prioritizing it and personalizing that sleep window which is going to be different for everybody and will change from week to week as well and I think that's the thing to remember is that you know you can't be idealistic around sleep particularly in your audience's industry but if they're aware of sleep that's the first step to making changes and making it better I think if you you know operating in a kind of environment where you're not necessarily aware of the impacts of poor sleep then that will have no consequences short term and long term both on physical and mental health and on the productivity in the workplace so it's, it's being pragmatic around your sleep which I think is key yeah and perhaps even designing like a little tick sheet or something that you can do that you don't hold yourself necessarily accountable for and lose sleep over the fact you haven't done a b or c but perhaps you know as you said it's making sure that your going to sleep process is individualized for yourself so if it is horlicks then horlicks if it is you know just warm water and lemon and maybe Mm. just a quick walk around the park then whatever it is find what works for you and build that process and 
be prepared to learn and to develop. I mean, breath work and meditation for me, not that I practice regularly, but if I'm really struggling with sleep, a guided meditation, I fall asleep before you know the first three minutes is over, and I genuinely tend to sleep quite soundly. So, you know, again, yeah. it might work for other people that you know. Exactly, and and just quickly, if there is a sleep disorder lurking, and the most common one being insomnia, then cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia is proven to have good results. And you don't necessarily—it's an umbrella term for lots of different therapies, and you don't necessarily have to see a therapist in person. There's lots of virtual therapies these days so the same team at oxford have got sleepio which is an app on your phone on cbti available in certain nhs <laughs> trusts not all scotland it's available across the board berkshire definitely oxfordshire i'm not so sure about but so have a look at that or the sleep station is yeah. a virtual cbti service so if, if your audience are working odd hours they can't physically get to see someone there are virtual technologies available for CBTI, which have been proven to have good results. So maybe worth a try. Definitely. I mean, one, having experienced insomnia back in my late teens for two and a half, three weeks was horrendous. Not to over-dramatize or stigmatize it, but when you're hallucinating through lack of sleep, it's not a pleasant experience to be in because yeah. you literally feel like you've got no control. But using these apps and using these therapies is clinically proven. And we offer something called Thrive, which is a mental well-being app. So it has CBT oh, right. resources, et cetera, on it. Mm-hmm. It is a subscription model for businesses. So if you've got any leaders listening to it, then you know, do consider that. But it's also got built-in critical therapy services. So if you do need to chat to a therapist, you can do within 10 minutes. And so it just gives you a bit of extra, you know, if you need to have that conversation, or if you're in the UK, you can use the Burnt Chef support service over here. Sometimes it's just about getting stuff out of your head or journaling, or there's so many things, there's so much good information on this episode that people can try and don't get overwhelmed just pick one or two things jot them down on a piece of paper and give them a go see what happens rate your sleep between one and ten after each one and and find out what works for you i'll send you some links the sleep charity also have a helpline i can send you lots of links after this and you can put them on your website yes please that'll be fantastic thank you ever so much it's been i found it really really interesting and i really really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us 